Welcome to the Good Listening To podcast with me, Chris Grimes, the podcast series that brings you The Clearing, where all good questions come to be asked and all good stories come to be told. And where all my guests have two things in common. They're all creative individuals and all with an interesting story to tell. There are some lovely storytelling metaphors, a clearing, a tree, a storytelling exercise called 54321, some alchemy, some gold, and a cake. So yes, who are you, what's your story, and what life lessons learned along your way would you like to share with us? So welcome to a GLT with me, CG, and we're recording. We're laughing from the get-go. So it's a great privilege to welcome to the Good Listening To podcast, Cheering Today, uh, a man who I can only describe as being a beautiful lyrical man. I've been really enjoying researching up to today to to bring the lovely Paul Dodgson here into the Good Listening To podcast, Clearing. Um, He's written a wonderful book, very lyrical of itself, and some of the songs I've been listening to, uh, Poppy's song, by the way, is just a perfect song, I think, and, and I hope you'll tell us a bit about that. But uh, the Good Listening To podcast is the place to, where all good stories come to be told and all good questions come to be asked. And I'm the, I suppose, author and curator of this uh, very exciting uh, energetic space called The Clearing. And so um, Paul Dodgson, who is a, a writer, a life writer, when I read that, I thought that's quite interesting because when you think of, of, of life art is whether or not we do it naked or not. <laughs> I'm sure you don't always feel the need to write naked, but I'm sure you have. We'll so, go yes. Into that later, yeah. so yes, you're really welcome. And, uh, you know, you're, you're, you're beautifully lyrical. I, I just want to share with you some of the lyrics later on that I saw that really, really caught my heart in, in, in working up to bringing you into the place today. But anyway, Paul Dodson, welcome. How are you? What's your story of the day? So thank you very much indeed. Um, it's lovely to be here. And uh, I suppose if I'm thinking of my story of the day, it is actually, do you know what it is? It's the story of the days. I was thinking about when we first met. Okay. And I bet you don't remember. Can you remember when we first met? Well, you've been on my awareness radar for for many, many years. And we have many, many people in common. We've got Kate Cross, who I met way back when at the beginning of my career. And in fact, even this morning, reading about that as I was speaking through your book, it reminded me that there's another actor that is also has just recently said yes and he was around about the same time there's all these connections it's an actor called Colin Hurley but anyway there are lots of connections but I think I've known you for about 20 years you have yeah actually longer than that and in fact I looked it up because I I can remember the the occasion we were both in auditioned for a production of a radio production of Cider with Rosie in 1998 in the same room by by a producer called Viv Beebe, yes. who um, who, produ- who uh, produced and directed the that that series, and we were both asked to read for the same part. We actually ended up we both ended up in it because I've just looked this up, and yeah. we uh, and um, I played the vicar, and I think you played various other parts. Yes, and interestingly, it was this was 1998, and it's about to be repeated on Radio Four Extra in March. Yeah. And Viv Beebe is that other connection because you subsequently went on to produce Poetry Please, didn't you? Yes, I did. Yes, that's right. I was a producer there anyway. And I started to I'd been I'd, I'd sort of begun acting and then um, uh, and then ended up producing. And so I was kind of creeping back into acting again. OK, I like that expression, creeping back. <laughs> 
And, and by the way, what's so wonderful about your, your book, On the Road Not Taken, um, obviously it has resonances of, I'm assuming, it, the road less travelled might be where you're going slightly. But I so love, uh, have you heard of something called Desire Lines, by the way? No, I haven't. If you're on the beaten path of something, how often people will go off piece and there'll be a new brand new track, which the architect of whichever space weren't expecting, which are called Desire Lines, where you think, oh, do you know what, I'd rather go this way. And desire lines are um, a really nice path. So what's lovely about your book is that I was really struck with the fact there's a journey to authenticity, how you delayed coming to the clearing, if you like, of what you really wanted to do by almost 40 years. Yes. But as we know, your desire lines to have gone somewhere else are not a waste of life. They're just different choices. Mm. So it, it, it's really profound because of all the notions of, of you know, sliding door moments in our life. And even in your book, you tell a beautiful story about a moment when you're about to, in a hotel in New York, go to bed. But instead, as the lift is about to open, you clock somebody who raises a glass to you in a bar. And then, you know, maybe you're going to tell us about this, but that, that results in a most spontaneous and beautiful evening. Yes. And I end up singing Fairy Tale of New York in a bar in Greenwich Village. <laughs> Yes, yeah. so listen, there's lots, lots, lots to talk about, but I really want you to just take this wherever you want to. Um, yeah. So I'm going to take you through the normal route map, um, as I've started to discover is the best way to do this. So we'll talk about a clearing, first of all, then we'll talk about the tree within your clearing, we'll shake your tree, there'll be alchemy, gold, and then there'll be a cake with a cherry yeah. on the top as well at the end. So if people don't have a reference to you, I know there's a clue to you because you often walk with a guitar over your shoulder. Yes. Even your book has that, if I showed up to the screen as well, that lovely sort of quintessential musician iconography. So if people don't have reference for you, but they just meet you, like this chap in uh, the hotel lobby in New York might meet you. Um, when people ask you that rather clunky question, hello, you look interesting, what do you do? What's your favourite way of answering that? Well, probably the most accurate thing I could say would be uh, a story engineer. Um, but um, that's not really an accepted uh, profession yet. But what by that I mean, I kind of work on stories and uh, it's and I have done throughout my professional life as a radio producer, as a teacher, um, as a, a script writing and writing mentor uh, and as a writer myself of scripts, of um, screenplays, and uh, now this book. So all, and, and, mu and of course, music in the form of songs, both in the theater and also in, uh, in it, songs that I just write for, my, for, for myself and put out into the world. So uh, it's all of those things. And if I wanted to find an umbrella term, I think it would be story engineer. That's so beautifully put. I've never heard anyone, it makes such profound sense, and I've never heard anyone say it like that. So, you know, you should copyright that. You are a story engineer. I just adore that. That's wonderful. Uh, and indeed, you, you know, again, your book, please talk about it as much as you want. Yes. It's full of, it's brilliant to flick through, by the way. I, you know, I've just found all sorts of magical moments. Um, so anyway, that is now time to bring you into a place called the clearing. So what is a clearing like for you? So where do you go, Paul Dodgson, to get clutter-free, innovative and able to think? Well, um, I think to, to start with, I would say I am very cluttered. I'm naturally very cluttered. As I'm talking to you now um, and I'm trying to talk in a straight line about the clearing 
Um, there are a hundred other things coming in and I could so easily digress and talk about something else uh, completely and actually not tell a very well-engineered story at all. Um, and that is the way my mind is. And so I find it very difficult to concentrate. I always have done. Um, it became apparent round about A-level time when you start needing to concentrate for long periods of time. But I found it difficult. I did a degree. I found that difficult. Um, and um, uh, I, I'm amazed I've ever done anything at all. But, um, <laughs> but you've but done many, many things. I have, to, I have ended up doing a lot of different things. Yeah. Uh, a jack of all trades. But um, what the what the clearing is for me now, I have discovered is running um i run and um i when i get up in the morning my mind is all over the place it's a it, i'm a mess of half constructed thoughts and i go running i go running six days a week i go out and i force myself out that my mind is saying don't bother stay at home pour yourself a cup of coffee just go upstairs just have a little look on the internet and i have to force myself out of the door and i run and um, within half an hour, I, I have, I, I'm out of the woods and I'm in the clearing. And it's just the most wonderful thing. And it stays with me to a certain extent all day. Beautiful stuff. I also, have you heard that expression, life is a wicked mess? I love the fact that as a story engineer, your head is just full of clutter, but running gets it out of your head and into it. It is amazing. And, and how I discovered this was, um, you know, I'd run, occasionally I'd run and in, in my 30s, I think, and I'd feel afterwards, I'd feel profoundly different. And I think that's interesting. And then um, there was a point where uh, I read a review of a book called um, What I Talk About When I Talk About Running by the Japanese novelist Haruki Murakami. And he wrote this quite slim little memoir, really, about running and writing and the, the connection between the two and how writing a, a novel or a, a long book is like running a marathon. And when I read this book, it just made sense. Now, the, the interesting thing was that the, um, the, the review that I read, it was in the independent newspaper, and it was written by Alistair Campbell, the um, Tony Blair's, Blair's director of communications and spin doctor in chief. And, um, and, and he had suffered, I think, I, he certainly, I, I suffer, have suffered from depression at various points in my life, and he has too. And I know that running is part of, part of his strategy. Um, and I, it kind of all made sense. And I, I remember I was working at Salisbury Playhouse um, just after, uh, I, as I was reading this book, and I was on, a, it was a tech week in a theater, um, and I was involved in from 10 o'clock in the morning till 10 o'clock at night, not moving very much. And so instead of just getting up, having breakfast and going in, I'd go out for a run every day that week, first of all, all around the water meadows. And the difference was so profound, I couldn't believe it. And I didn't start running every day at that point. It kind of took a little while to get to that stage. And um, it, um, but the effect is profound and it's an extraordinary and it's it settles everything down and uh, then some some years later I was running an event at a literary festival down in um, Cornwall in a little Cornish village and uh, I was I got up early in the morning and I th thought I would go for a run before my event 
and there was a man in the distance I could see. I didn't know where I was, a very hilly place by the coast. And so I thought I'd follow this man. And so I followed him and he went out through the lanes and round and back. And, I've, and as I drew back into the, into the town, I caught up with him and it was Alistair Campbell. Oh. He was so down speaking. So I was able to say to him, I'm running because of you. Good grief. And, and by the way, as you were speaking about Alistair Campbell, I remember about, you know, his, I read about his depression and yeah. how he would, in your monsters of distraction, getting you to go upstairs or have another coffee rather than running. I remember a story about him walking down a corridor in his house, wherever it was, and his instinctive decision to open his curtains or not would inform him subliminally about whether his depression, if he was feeling dark, was going to take over. If he oh, could yes. just open the curtains, it means that he was in the day. Yes. But that, that's so extraordinary that he is your inspirer and then you find yourself running alongside running him. Up alongside him, yeah, amazing. And the chaos that you've experienced in your mind, it sounds to me, as a story engineer, you've got lots of desire lines going on in your head, is what I think. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when I was young, when I was at school and people would say, what do you want to be when you grow up? I could never settle on any one thing. And so what actually has happened is that I haven't settled on one thing. It's lots of different things, but there is a common root. Uh, but um, yeah, but 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 that's that works best for me. And at the point you are in your life now, when you look back, you know that beauty of the gift of hindsight. Can you see yeah. the golden thread that's weaved? You know, albeit a sort of uh, a, a big snaking of, of a narrative. But can you see? Can you see the sort of ley lines towards now that all make sense? Yeah, yeah, I can. It does make sense. Um, it does make sense, and. Uh, I'll probably talk a little bit more about that as we go on, actually. Sure, yeah. sure. So we're, we're running, and if I may, I'm going to run alongside you now. Run and, alongside um, me. While your you're talking, can I pour a coffee? Please do. <laughs> so you're running along, and um, I'm there with you now, and I've arrived with a tree. So it's quite difficult to yes. up you as I sort of heft after you with a tree. And we're going to shake your tree in the clearing yes. uh, to see which storytelling apples fall out. Yes. Now, this is the 54321 exercise where you've had about five minutes or as long as you needed. Paul Dodgson to think about four things that have shaped you, three things that inspire you, two things that never fail to grab your attention, a bit whoop, squirrels, a bit like the uh, borrowed from the up uh, reference there, and then one quirky or unusual fact about you we couldn't possibly know until you tell us. So it's just to get you on the open road of desire lines of stories you'd like to tell with, with the thread of that as your stimulus. So um, go wherever you like within the structure of me shaking your tree to see which apples fall out. Okay. Well, um, I think um, I, it's, it's interesting. I automatically want to head towards a kind of chronological uh, narrative in within the four things. So I will do that. And I'm going to start with home. Um, home for me was a house in Kent, a modest detached house in a place called Hythe, which is a little uh, town on the coast of Kent. And um, it's slightly unusual. I was an only child, and um, it was I had a slightly unusual childhood in that my parents never moved. So I that's the first house that I can remember. And um, the house was eventually sold when my mum moved into a care home uh, two years ago. So in all that time, this place has been there as a and constant. as a constant. Yeah. And so. Whenever somebody says to you, wherever you are in the world, and somebody says, hey, where's home? Um, my thought would always be, Hythe, 
this little house in Hythe in Kent. And um, it was a it was a it was a lovely place to grow up. And I, I often think when I watch documentaries about the 1970s, um, there's usually kind of bleak bomb sites, um, still strangely and often in black and white, but um, uh, um, strange kind of almost apocalyptic uh, landscapes of decay. And um, it just wasn't like that in Hythe. It was a nice, genteel little town um, on the coast, uh, looking out across the sea to France. And um, that's where I grew up and it nurtured me and supported me as did mum and dad. But at the same time, it was a very um, organized place. So I think of my, I think of my parents, um, uh, I, it, to, to use a metaphor, I think that my parents' life were, was like an organized tour. Um, you know, and um, uh, they knew where they were staying. They knew how they were how they were going to get there, and they knew what they were going to eat on the whole uh, when they got there. You know, they, they it was all sorted out, um, and it was very organised, and it functioned really well for them. Whereas, and I think I sort of reacted against that, and I feel like to continue the metaphor, I've been backpacking. Um, I, I've had a, a kind of one way ticket, and I've spent a lot of time sleeping in ferry ports and railway stations metaphorically. And were you tempted in the constancy after your mum passed away, were you tempted to take the house on or you knew that that was just the end of an era? Well, my mum hasn't passed away. She's in a care oh, home. Sorry. So, yeah, sorry, sorry, sorry. No, my father has, but uh, um, uh, my my mum is in a care home now. Right. And um, so in order to pay the care home, to, to support the care home fees, we had to sell the house. Okay. I wasn't, I wasn't, I wouldn't have been tempted though, because I've left there now. I live, I live in Cardiff now. And um, right. That's my home, and uh, uh, it's not. Um, it's it's that's that's the past. It was a sad thing. It was a strange and sad thing to see it go. And the last week, I, I may well write about that in the in in the future. Actually, about yes. the last week in the house because um, it was a strange thing as I un went through the archaeology of my parents' possessions oh, and had goodness. to throw almost everything away. Uh, and just and do you mind me asking how long ago your father passed away? Yeah, um, that was in 2001, so that's nearly ah. 20 years ago. Mm. Okay. And um, so, yeah, so that was, that, so, so I think, but I think that in terms of shaping, the stability of it kind of, um, and safety of it gave me something to react against and gave me possibly the confidence to, um, to be less so in my own my own life and maybe that moves on to the next thing because that's where you yeah, yeah, sure, sure. Up, which I, I wanted to talk about um the uh actually no I, I want to keep the chronology so I'm going to stick I'm going to stick with the chronology um I'm going to talk about the BBC the BBC Lovely. okay I got a job in 1986 so I, I did a degree in um drama theatre and television studies and um uh, I got very interested in sound recording when I was there. And where Actually, was that, Paul? That where was that? Or yes, when? that you did where, your um, degree. I, it was in a place called King Alfred's College in Winchester, which uh -huh. is now the University of Winchester. Uh -huh. It's been up upgraded, so it depends who you're talking to. People say, "Where did you go to?" And you might say, um, "Well, University of Winchester," or you might say, "King Alfred's College." Okay, I like the historic. King Alfred sounds more historic. It was a teacher training college originally, yeah. and um, it, it expanded into a liberal arts college in the 70s, actually. 
and started doing these other degrees. And we had an amazing, you know, it was an amazing place. There was a TV studio there and you could, it was before there were, um, before there were any, you know, portable video cameras and things, they would yes. have these things called porter packs that you could sign out. And I uh, remember, had, yes, yes. You remember those things, great big things that you, you, big you would- Hefting things. Hefty thing that you'd have over your shoulder that with a wire that connected to a camera on your, that you'd put up, actually on your shoulder and you go wandering around with that with very limited battery life and forgive me for sidetracking you slightly but you said yes. you got a job seminally at the bbc yes and then i got a job at the bbc yeah. i got a job as a um as a studio manager initially at the bbc they used to have a training scheme for um people to come into the bbc and it was a way of it was a way of getting in it was quite a you know i, I used to I, I studied the odds um uh, and worked out how I could get this job. And I realized that, you know, I applied for it while I was still at, um, at college and didn't get in, but I had the experience of going for a board and I sort of realized all the ingredients that I needed. Um, okay. And so in over the next year, um, actually spent time learning enough physics so I could confidently say how a microphone works. Okay, okay. Um, yes understanding current affairs enough to be able to know what the major stories were um to be able to listen to enough radio drama to understand how it was made yes and just learn about things so that they when they said to me um tell me what what's the most important story today i could say i know it's you know and then um, when they said in the interview uh, tell me about your um tell me about you know how does magnetic tape actually work and, and you, knew. Like, <laughs> and I knew, I knew all these things and uh, and, it, and i got in and i got in as a trainee studio manager and um it was a great training and i ended up both at, well I, I did a little bit of time at broadcasting house but i then ended up at the world service and I think now of my time at the BBC, because I was initially a studio manager and then a producer at the BBC from between 1986 to 2001. Mm -hmm. uh, and um, I think of that as actually my university. It was the university of the BBC. Mm -hmm. And um, I learned so much through my encounters with the people that I met. And so initially in the world service, uh, the World Service in, in, in those days was primarily broadcasting on sh shortwave all around the world. And there were 36, I think, different language services. And you would be given a, um, you, your job would be to turn up 15 minutes before a transmission um, and for a very kind of harried and, and uh, frustrated and uh, chaotic um, presenter to come running in with tapes and records and scripts in Pashto maybe, or Mandarin or wow. Russian. Yes. And they'd hand it all to you and you'd just have to, you'd have 15 minutes to kind of make sense of it, get it on air. And, um, and how could you do that if it's all coming at you in sort of multilinguistic packages of information? Well, they, um, the, you could, it, most scripts you can follow, Mandarin and Russian are harder. Um, but, but most <laughs> most others are. And even after a while, you began to get the sense of of pace of scripts in Russian and and, and Mandarin. Wow. You didn't, you didn't, um, you 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 didn't know you know what was going on. 
but uh, and then there would be hand signals so you you just needed to know that it was that tape one band one was first and then tape two band one was next and as long as everything was in the right order they would be reading and then they would go like that and you would play in the tape and uh, uh, and if it was the right one, it all was good. If it was the wrong one, they'd kind of go like that. And you'd be <laughs> so the power of body language to read yes. whether or not you're being a good producer. I love that. And then and then it um, yeah. And it, but these but these people were amazing, and they were often uh, very often uh, were uh, had escaped difficult regimes uh, um, in their home countries to end up in the UK and become broadcasters. And so they were all really interesting people. And so I ended up learning so much about the world. Um, and so I do think of it as, a, as, a, as, as the university of the BBC. And um, then I became a producer um, initially um, for the music, the pop music unit, it was called in the world. Pop Service. music unit. Pop music unit. And the pop music unit had various programs that were made every week, including um, uh, uh, people like uh, you know Dave Lee Travis, who would come in the, the radio one DJ and do something. And um, and and but amongst these were um, there was a youth program um, for youth called Megamix, and I got to produce this. And uh, it was a magazine program. And one of the first things they did when when I started there was to say, look, what you need to do, what we want is a live broadcast from New York. So you've got to go out and do that. And so um, it was that was the first sort of foreign trip I had. And it was the most amazing thing to sort of be having watched New York on screen and read about it all my life to then suddenly go there and have this ticket to kind of get you into places. Yes. And uh, the BBC in those days had a... Um, uh, an office had a, had a suite of offices and studios high up in the Rockefeller Center in Manhattan. And oh, so how you'd, lovely. And you'd walk in through the door and there'd be this sort of Manhattan skyscape, uh, skyscape behind you and you'd really feel like you were you were something. Being from the UK as well and the sort of love the American stereotypically have of the British, I'm from the BBC Ooh. and then you're in Manhattan. That's better. It was, it was interesting, yeah. But then to bring it down to earth, we did our, we, we put this program together and um, and, and it went out live and it was a fairly amazing experience and it was you know you knew that a phenomenal amount of people were listening to it you know millions of people around the world in on shortwave in Nigeria and in um, Russia and in all over the place would be crouched around these little shortwave radios listening to you because partly because they would write to us and tell us and um, anyway we went we finished this program and we were on a real high and we went down to a cocktail bar over the road it was a Monday night and it was completely empty. And the presenter um, went up to the bar and said, we want to have two uh, cocktails because we've just broadcast to 50 million people. And the barman just kind of looked at us and says, is that so? <laughs> <laughs> what more need he say? Just <laughs> right, yes, and brilliant. <laughs> and you're, you're so enabling other people's work during all this time. And I know because of the book On the Road Not Taken, somewhere in your narrative, you're also wanting to be a musician. That's sort of something. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So so the thing about being a producer is and I became so I was a producer in the World Service and then I uh, came to Bristol to work on a program. there. that's what brought me to, to Bristol in 1991 um, to work on a, on a 
on and ended up working on various programs um drama documentaries uh, literary programs all kinds of things and um um what you're doing is enabling somebody else's creativity essentially yes. and often what i would find is particularly working with quite well-known people um uh, and making one-off programs with them documentary type programs creative documentaries that they would be very chaotic and would be firing off all over the place and your job would be to rein it in and to make a story out of this chaos mm -hmm. and um and I'd been doing this for quite a long time and I just wanted to do it myself um and so you know event um eventually I did and there's um, a delicious irony in that as well because at the very beginning you were talking about how you feel that you're very chaotic within your own mindscape yes in a good way so very creative and lots of desire lines firing off different places and tangents and yet you you then had to make a job out of trying to contain other people's chaos or creativity yeah it is it's true um and um it is true and i think i'm quite good at just going to work actually and having a job and a job to do i think i'm quite good at that i think it's particularly when i'm on my own um that everything comes comes shooting in you know i was i was i'm quite good when when in the good old days when we used to catch trains to go to places and uh, <laughs> yes. I'd, I'd have an hour on the train you know i i, I could she say oh i've got an hour on the train that gives me enough time to write the notes on this script yes to you gather know, your thoughts gather yes. my thoughts or just to, to actually do a piece of work you know? your train of thought see what i did there <laughs> so, um, on the train. but i did leave and i and i and i'll i will come to that but um the other thing I wanted to talk about that shaped me was the death of my father, um, uh, which ha uh, happened in 2001. And he had, um, I mean, my dad was amazing. He left school. I, I'm not entirely sure when he left school. I think it was 14, but I'm not sure whether school leaving age hadn't gone up at that stage. So I, I haven't, I, I need to research that. But he left school very young, maybe it was 15. Um, and he went out to work um, and he also started smoking. Um, and he smoked throughout his life. And he, 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 was an ama he was amazing. He, he was an engineer, uh, an engineer of things, uh, of tool, you know, a tool maker, actually. And um, he would um, work with, uh, and he gradually became um, more and more successful within the company he was working for. He, he was promoted and he got higher up in the company and he ended up as a company director. I discovered that he was actually going to night school right into his thirties to get qualifications. So, you know, it's a very, very different world to the yes. one that, that I grew up in. And um, he was always the voice of reason and I could always phone him up. And I can remember when I said to him, um, I wanted to be a writer. He said, yes, but what are you going to write? And uh, and that was him. He could um, he could if he had a decision to make, he could write a list of the advantages and the disadvantages, and he could make a decision based on the list because it so would based be based on logic and constancy. Because you said they were very still in their life and very pragmatic and planned. Yes, you mentioned yeah, they, they always knew what to eat, so very regimented in a way. Yeah, and. Um, and and he could he he was he was very logical and, and liked things that were logical and understood them, but he had smoked and um, and he smoked yeah he I think he didn't stop until he was about sixty five, so by the 
time, you know, it, it perhaps wasn't a surprise when one day there was a phone call to say that they'd been a, uh, um, he'd had an x-ray and there was a shadow on his lung mm -hmm. and he had lung cancer and he was operated on, but it was slightly too late and he died. So within quite a short space of time, he'd been part of us. He'd been in my house in the uh, outside Bristol where I was living at the time, uh, putting up a, a, a a climbing frame for my daughter to not being there anymore yes. and um you know and that did have a a really profound effect because i think we we were very lucky in that you know i i, I as i say i'm an only child so i didn't have brothers or sisters and and there was a fairly sort of modest family group but we went through my childhood right up to 2001 without any of that direct group having any sort of tragedy okay yes um and um then my father died and then within 10 years that whole general with the exception of my mum everybody had gone from that generation so and how old uh, were you in 2001 because it's a really interesting moment of, of, of I suppose having to be a grown-up from 2001 probably even though you're a parent at the time as well, well I was 38 I felt I was just 39 I was at 39 um two days before he died oh. and so it was a strange it was a very strange time and it's no, you know, it's no surprise now when I look back on it that um, within a year, I'd left my job. Um, I'd uh, my marriage had uh, marriage to the mother of my Poppy and Fred, my children had ended. Um, I'd also been through another kind of episode of depression, and um, I'd gone hurtling down another road. It's not a surprise, and I think it does, you know. It, it, it had a profound effect and that's why I've uh, that's why it's something that that came into my mind um, immediately as yes. something that, that that shaped me and in the, on chapter one of on the road not taken you do go straight to there it's almost like that's the beginning moment I know you, you, you play with the timeline beautifully within the book and there's moments and chapters about 1976 and blah, blah, blah. But, but 2001 is where you start isn't it I believe with your, with your it is yeah, into yeah. Your, yes with your father yeah mm, yeah yeah so we're still in the clearing and we're talking about the things that have shaped you. Um, so I think it's the fourth thing now that's shaped you. So the fourth thing that shaped me is um, singing again. So um, uh, I, I stopped singing when I was, I think about 19 years old, I think I worked it out, but I, um, I stopped singing in public, I should, or singing songs in public, I should say. I didn't stop singing altogether. I just stopped singing songs in public. And, um, I wanted to sing ever since, you know, I, I wanted to sing. Um, I would go to parties where people would sing and I would want to sing. I would stand and watch bands on stage and I would want to be standing there too singing. And I didn't. And the longer I left it, the harder it became to actually sing. Um, and I wrote, songs for for I mean I've written songs for other uh, singers to sing that have you know ended up on records I've written a lot for uh, of lyrics and music for theatrical productions and um, I would kind of apologize for my voice and and say this is the song and and uh, and croak it out to the actors and uh, um, and be apologetic and I never actually had the confidence to stand and sing myself and um, Partly, I think, 
um, that songs are a way of explaining the world. It's songs I particularly love, and I think they are a way of explaining the world. And for me, it's it's a, a wonderful way of understanding things is through songs and music. And um, I wanted to be, as well as being on the receiving end of that, I wanted to be um, giving it out, and I wasn't. And uh, I always thought I'd do it tomorrow. I thought, that's fine, I'll do it tomorrow. You know, I'd been in bands when I was young. I, we'd had a, a, a lovely kind of life in, in Kent in our, with our band, the Entangled Network. Um, and we got to, you know, we got to the point where we, we, we split up when I had to do my A-levels. And it, I, I hadn't found my way back to that, to actually performing live again. And, and what do you got... attribute the, the sort of cork being put in your sort of genie <laughs> gift of singing? Because I'm so happy that you have decided to, as you say, yeah, you're not just croaking it out. Your songs are incredibly lyrical. And because of your wisdom of your life's journey to now, they immediately, you know, go straight to an emotional core, which is, you know, very, very profound. Um, you know, anyway, so what do you attribute the, the corking to, you think? The corking was, I think, um, I think it was a sense of needing to be really good um, of, of, of as soon as I performed in front of anybody needing to be perfect. And um, of course you, you're, you're not perfect when you begin. You have, to, um, uh, you have to learn, you have to learn how to stand on stage and sing to people. For many performers, I mean, sometimes I talk to performers about this book and they say, they just don't, they say, well, why? It's just, it's just what you do. And I say, well, it's for a lot of people, it just isn't what you do. Yes. And it's a, it's a profoundly different thing. And you feel very exposed. There's something about your singing voice as opposed to your speaking voice that's very um, revealing. And um, I think, and uh, it's almost like suddenly you, you're naked in front of people, you know, when you had all your clothes on beforehand. It's the creative endeavour and the sort of exposure that that really yeah. truly is, because you've got to step into the sunlight of judgment. I think sometimes we can feel. Yes. Um, and, yet and, I, and I put the cork in and, and the thing, I think, you know, I, I would sometimes be embarrassed about singing and um, the embarrassment would result in a kind of momentary tone deafness, which would mean I'd start singing a line and it would be way off key and everybody would laugh, you know. And um, what I didn't realise for a long time was that you just have to learn it. <laughs> you can just learn it and then you can sing in tune. You know, it's just a matter of practice. Yes. Uh, um, I sort of thought you either had it or you didn't. And there was this sense that, you either had a good voice or you didn't have a good voice. And once I decided that I didn't have a good voice, the cork went in the bottle. And of course, the, the, the delicious irony is that as long as one is being authentic, your voice is always just perfect because it's authentically coming. From yeah, that's right. Yes. Truth. A bit like yeah. an actor's choice and the choices that they make. And, mm. and by the way, just uh, in the, one of the lyrics I just loved, and I only found this yesterday, but the sky's a mess of contrails, but there's music in the air. Oh, <laughs> and I just love that. And and it, every time I, I tune into your lyrics, I'm just thinking, wow, I'm so happy that you've decided to be the lyricist. I, I, you've written numerous plays. I know you are a lyricist for yeah. others, but it's great you brought it back home. Yeah. So you're standing but, in the clearing with your own guitar now. Well, the lovely thing is, I think the lovely thing is about music that they don't, it, it, you know, it's not, the, or the lovely thing is about songs that they're not there nothing's there and you sometimes you you have to go to work at it jason isbell the american singer songwriter says you know plumbers don't get plumbers block um <laughs> i love that 
their ballcock stuck or something. Exactly, yeah. That you have to, you know, you have to go to work at writing songs. And I, I, I agree with that, you do. And, but sometimes there's some sort of impulse that comes along. There's something that starts, starts the process off and there's been nothing there. And then um, you work at it and it's sometimes, it's sometimes it just comes, but usually it's kind of like a sculpture. It's like making a sculpture out of a piece of wood, you know, and you're kind of chipping away at it. And then eventually it's there and then it's there. And you can carry it around with you and you and you can take it out as I've done to you know, Berlin and you can sing it in a bar in, 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 uh, in, in Berlin at, at two o'clock in the morning and you can take it to the Silly Isles and sing it there and you can take it up to somebody's living room in uh, Yorkshire and you can sing it there. And this thing kind of travels around with you, this little universe that you've made. And it's a really sad It's a lovely full circle in the fact that back in the producer days, people just give you sort of tones of Mandarin and yet you can make it go into the world by, I'll broadcast that then. So there yeah. is a way of just, you know, the transferable currency of music being, you know, the currency yeah. of all culture. Everything yeah. can all relate to music. It either resonates or it doesn't and we can all relate to it. And I think the, the, the extraordinary thing is that now, I probably did start this process thinking, well, maybe, you know, I'll be standing up there with Bruce Springsteen, you know, on um, Wembley Stadium stage, somewhere far back in my mind. And then in, in a, in a um, pub on, in Bristol on Friday night when I was supporting, uh, um, on a rainy Friday night when I was supporting Kid Carpet and somebody else, I was at the bottom oh, yeah. of the bill. And um, I'm sort of standing there and there's, half a dozen people sitting watching me and people more and more people arriving and talking in the background you realize actually that's not going to happen you know you've got a long way to go but there are those six people sitting there watching you and that's the thing you know yes, that, connection and, and totally relatable by the way because in my world of comedy improvisation you know there have been times when i'm performing to like a tortoise and a stoat it feels <laughs> in the middle of nowhere and then other times there's you know potentially you know if in a different setting there could be hundreds of people there and what, it's it's, yes, it is exactly yes, and and you, um, but it's some. I mean, I would say probably for me, it's more often the fewer than the tortoise than the you know than the hundreds. But it is still it's they are still there, and you have to sort of. And what I've had to do is to sort of redefine the idea of success. Absolutely, success. yes, it's totally yeah. relative. It's all about yes. I that's again beautifully relatable. Absolutely. And what is wonderful is that one of the so I made a um, a, a record and um, the record uh, I, I um, the record includes a song I wrote for my daughter when she left home and yeah, this uh, is copy, copy song, song isn't it yeah, yeah. and um, um, it was a sort of manifesto my little sort of manifesto for her to take out into the world and um, what is amazing is that that song. Um, has been playlisted on Spotify. So the way kind of music grows now is, is it used to be kind of radio play used to be the thing. And now it's, it's Spotify playlists as well are really yes. important. And it's a song that has found its way on to playlists all around the world and has been, and as I speak, it's, it's just approaching something like 27,000 listens. Congratulations. And it's, if I may, yeah. I, I think it is a perfect song and I, it doesn't surprise me it's on a playlist. Anyone who has a, I mean, my daughter's 21, has recently gone to university, anyone who can relate to the fact their child is about to step into the world, you know, wherever you may roam, this will always be a home for you. It's just so beautiful. And I love the fact that Poppy 
in the song also has her own graffiti tag, Know That You're Alive. And I yes. now know that I've walked past that. Have you? In Bristol a lot. And I'm going to go looking for it again. But it's just, it is a beautiful song, Poppy song. Oh, yeah. So thank you. So there's a light at my window and wherever so, you may roam. And it's your, so you tell us the lyric. Well, well the, it, what, um, just to explain why that you have seen that as a graffiti tag is that um, I asked Poppy to make the video for the song. And so I just, I just said, go, can you go and make the video for the song and edit it and, and bring it back to me? Because I, I don't, I quite like not appearing in them, you see. And because um, I can do that. That's the other thing. I don't have to because it's, you know, I'm at this stage in my life. And, um, and so she went and filmed this and she, there's this lyric in it, um, uh, know that you're alive. And um, I, um, it, um, if I could tell you just one thing, it's to know that you're alive. And uh, um, she went and, and put that in various places around the city and filmed herself painting it on um, uh, on bridges and uh, various things. Where well, I recognise a lot of the infrastructure of where she's put them yes. and I'm going to go looking to see if it's still there. <laughs> if it's still there, yeah, because that was in 2019, I think. So uh -huh. it'd be interesting to see whether somebody's come along and put it over the top. And she's very, very talented in her filmmaking as well. And I know your son, Fred, is also a musician now as well. So yeah. I think whatever you're doing as a parent, so you're really encouraging them to follow their creative and artistic bliss. Well, of course, we, we, we um, you know, talking of parenting, I mean, it's been, I've been at a distance from them throughout their life because, um, you know, when Fred was quite young, I split up with, um, with their, their mum. Um, and so we have, we have, we, I mean, we would spend a lot of time together, um, but um, a lot of credit must go to, uh, to Poppy's, Poppy and Fred's mum, I have to say. How wonderfully generous of you. That's, that's, but, but what's so clear is your own profound connection. Because as I say, Poppy's song, for me, is just a perfect song. I just thought, wow. And I, I felt, you know, I, I almost, I was saying to uh, Jenny, my wife, over breakfast, actually, I'm, in the time I've been researching this, I've developed, if I may, a bit of a man crush for you. I think it's so good. <laughs> Because you're like a gentle Bob Dylan in, in what it is you sound like, and you probably don't want to be boxed at all, but it's incredibly lyrical with, with, with just beautiful lyrics within there. There's also something about diamonds, <laughs> diamonds of Brislington, diamonds at my Brislington diamonds. Yeah, well, that's a, um, there's a song called Brislington diamonds. And that was just a phrase that, um, uh, some, and there, there is some connection with, um, with, with Richard Coles, you know, the Reverend Richard Coles, who Gosh, yeah. I, I'm not sure what, I, I, I believe a friend of mine was producing a program with Richard Coles. And I think what happened was they were walking along the road and Richard, and there was some broken glass on the pavement in Bristol. And, um, and apparently he looked down and pointed at it and said, Brislington diamonds. <laughs> Uh, broken glass from a car window. Do you know and, what's uh, so extraordinary in five degrees of separation? I thought about the Reverend Richard Coles this morning, thinking, gosh, I'd really like to be able to sort of send him the podcast just to see what he thinks about it. But it, but it's just so extraordinary that Brislington Diamonds, that story. But also... Yeah, I don't know whether I remember that, but um, I don't know whether I've remembered it correctly, but that's where it came from, the memory of that. And I... And um, uh, I love that broken glass in Brisbane because also I made a dark comic short film called Knock Knock, which was set in Brislington. Do you know I've seen that? Yes, that's right. That's Chris great. Yankee. Yes. And yes. Anyway, I, 
Um, but but it was it, it, that was someone almost crunching, as you say, through the bristling from diamonds to go and get their fix of the day, which is what the film is about in a sort of quirky way. Anyway, um, I love that beautiful mm. stuff. And so now I think we've come to the four things that have shaped you. Yes. And now it's three things that inspire you. Yes. Okay. Um, okay. So I'm going to talk first of all about Laurie Lee. Uh, and I'm going to use Laurie Lee as a gateway into life writing. Um, not so much, I've, I've talked quite a lot about myself and life writing, so I'm going to talk about the value of life writing, because I think it has immense value in the world. Um, and um, Laurie Lee, poet and memoirist, um, who indeed wrote Cider with Rosie, yes, did. the adaptation that we were both in, in 1998, um, by the way, um, I know by heart the first, um, the opening of the book Cider with Rosie because it struck me in a similar way. So I'm really intrigued to know. Oh, ah, well, I, it, both, I, I think the opening of Cider with Rosie and also the next one, which was the next book he wrote, which was As I Walked Out One Midsummer Morning, that describes him leaving his home in the Cotswolds and walking uh, initially to Southampton because he'd never seen the sea then going back to London and working as a labourer in London for a while, for 18 months or so, and then travelling across Spain with a violin on his back um, and eventually getting caught up in the Spanish Civil War and being rescued from the beaches by the Royal Navy in, 19, in the 1930s. I think, 19, I think he leaves in 1934. And both of those books, the, the first two pages, I think are perfect... Uh, uh, examples of how to tell life story because they are full of movement, sensory detail, um, of showing not telling and yet at the same time are full of the context that you need to understand the bigger story. Um, and um, put, by the way I completely agree with all of that. <laughs> And Laurie Lee is, um, and, I, and in, when you, when, when I read, particularly as I walked out one midsummer morning, which deals with him as a, uh, he's 19 when he left home. So he's, he's sort of 19, 20, 21 as he's moving across Spain. The, some of the attitudes to race and objectification of women, you know, are very much of a, a, a products of another age. Mm -hmm. But nevertheless, the way he writes, um, the way he describes things is extraordinary. And, um, and he, then went, he then went on to write a little essay about um, what he called autobiography um, and um, life writing, memoir, autobiography are kind of interchangeable terms. And um, there is a... Um, um, sentence in this essay, which I, I keep on my walls, so I'm going to look up and find it now, um, which is, um, which I think explains why it's so important. Um, autobiography can be the laying to rest of ghosts, as well as an ordering of the mind. But for me, it is also a celebration of living and an attempt to hoard its sensations. Oh, <laughs> The only word is delicious. Thank you very much. Can you say it again? It's so delicious. Yeah. Okay. So autobiography can be the laying to rest of ghosts as well as an ordering of the mind. 
But for me, it is also a celebration of living and an attempt to hoard its sensations. Wow. And you know, to this day, I still use the first paragraph of Cider with Rosie. You know, I was set down from the carrier's cart at the age of three. Yeah. I use that to, to get people to use texture and color in their voice because it's so sense evoking and full of insects jumping about and you yeah. know, just taste of, of berries. It's just beautiful. And I use it in life writing classes. So I teach. So, so I suppose I'm going on to say that um, um, that I believe that life writing is a wonderful thing. And I believe it's a wonderful thing, not just for lords and ladies, kings and queens. Uh, it's, it is um, something for everybody, that everybody has, uh, uh, everybody's life is an extraordinary thing and is worth documenting. Yes, um, humanity binds us all and our story yeah. therein, yes. And one thing, I, I, I put a little, I, I received a book the other day called this, it's called North Facing, um, late flowering and it's by a man called Graham Clift who I had the pleasure of mentoring just a few just a few sessions over a few years not not any any great um, uh, not any great time uh, and he has just published his memoir and in the beginning he says um, uh, he says that um, about talks about a gap down which working class lives are lost to history they're left off the corporate web pages They've slipped down between the archive minutes, newspaper clippings and old photographs. The kind of lives rarely represented in the biography shelves of libraries and bookshops, the lives I wanted my book to be about. And, um, and I, think that's, um, I think that's a lovely way. He's expressed it much better than I can of no, why no, I, I write it. You can tell as well, there's great humility in you, which I'm really admiring here because you can tell that he owes some of what he's crafted and given birth to, to to the fact that you, you were his mentor i love that well, only a little bit because i think he no, had no, a lot but, of mentors but <laughs> yeah but uh, in, anyway it's lovely that it's come out and yes and I, I teach and life writing is something that i've been teaching now for um 10 years um, you're a fellow uh, at the bristol university doing that aren't you no i'm actually a, a, i'm a writing fellow at bristol university yeah. for the royal literary fund and what that means is I'm a kind of essay doctor. So it's actually not to do with creative writing. People come along with essays about fish farming or uh, engineering or some uh, entrepreneur, entrepreneur, entrepreneurial um, uh, something or the other. And <laughs> I, <laughs> I don't know. But again, coming round to you being a story engineer, it's just a yeah. lovely, and, and then the story engineering that happens in your songs as well is just, again, it, it, is, it is all coming clear as to the, your journey to now. It's lovely yeah thank you so um that's um so that's number one um so that was a kind of gateway into life writing and to talk about my children actually um because my children inspire me um i'm you know that my daughter is now 25 uh and my son is 21 and they are um and they are inspirational my daughter is uh, has become a musician herself. She learned to play the drums um, in, I think it was about this time of year in 2017, um, I took a, her and her friend into a studio in Waterloo to produce a demo of their first, of a song that they'd made together with her playing, Poppy playing the drums and Yasmin playing, um, singing and playing the electric guitar. And, um, since then, um, they have become a band called Grandma's House, 
who now have management and who, ha who released a single last week that was played on Radio One and on twice on Six Music on the first day alone and sort of has had thousands of thousands of views and listens within the first few days, which is amazing. And uh, it's, it's a real inspiration to sort of see them take up this idea and pursue it. Um, and, um, and I absolutely love that. Um, and I love the creativity that goes in to this because it's to do with they, you know, it's to do with the way they look, the way their videos are made, um, uh, as well as the way they sound. And, um, and my son, also uh, a musician, um, was but before the pandemic struck, um, was in a band called Football FC, and they'd already played at a festival in Amsterdam, and they'd been all over the place, and had a tour booked. And unfortunately, the pandemic came along, and um, they were kind of hotly tipped at the time. Unfortunately, now they've sort of fallen apart. But oh. Fred has, um, in in the meantime. Um, decided that he wants to launch a new magazine and while he's at um he's he's at university uh, um in bristol but he's um he's learning while that's going on he he and a group of friends are working office hours on a new magazine that brings together music and sport and um what's rather lovely about that is that um i i think i did give him music I think music did come from me, you know, because I had a when I was when I was living in Bristol, um, I had a studio and uh, uh, in my garden, and every when whenever they came to stay, we'd go down into the studio and make a noise. And but in um, but sport comes, I think, from his stepfather. And uh, sadly, Fred's stepfather died last year. But Kate remarried um, a, a wonderful man called John, who was a fantastic steadying presence in their lives. And, um, uh, and was fanatical about sport and so gave that to Fred. And so he's got these hybrid. Yes. Yeah, and so he's brought them together in this magazine that's, uh, that hopefully will emerge when we, when we all emerge. And because uh, it's a physical magazine, that's what they want to do. So there's a sort of musician DNA in there, but also there is the um, storytelling if you're doing a magazine. So there's, there's quite a lot of your DNA that's prevalent within that new well, he's, a, he's a very good writer. He's, he's better than I was at his age, for sure. Yeah. Lovely. A, a true font of joy and inspiration in children. Lovely. And finally, um, I'm going to I'm going to mention my partner, Sarah. I live so I, I now live in Cardiff with um, my partner, Sarah, who is the uh, executive director of Samaritans Cymru. And so, as you can imagine, it's been a busy time this last year. And um, it has it's one of the you know I, I think we've been really lucky in this lockdown because we you know so far touch laminate we haven't had um, uh, we haven't had COVID um, we've uh, both had a lot of work on so we've been able to keep going mm -hmm. but we've had each other and actually I only moved here in 2017 and um I have up until now spent most of my life since probably since 1986, either going off to work quite a long way away every day or moving around to rarely spending any time in the same place. And so this last year has been a complete shift. Um, and what's been extraordinary is that we have spent it together and we are able to wander along the corridor and talk to each other because Sarah's working at home too. And we meet at the end of the day and we cook, we have tea together in the afternoon. 
And um, we wake up in the morning and we start talking and we're still talking last thing at night. And uh, it's amazing, it's inspirational. So, Sarah. Mm. Wonderful, thank you, that's lovely. She'll be proud of that too, lovely. Yes, I'm just wanting to allow a bit of silence there because that was just a, a lovely tribute to Sarah. So we're still now onto two things that never fail, Ooh, squirrels, to grab your attention. Where does that come from? I, I love that. I, it makes me laugh every time I hear oh, it. Oh, it's from Up, the film Up, where there's a oh. dog that just goes, uh, and why I particularly resonate with it. When I first went to drama school, I was, I was analogized to being like an untrained Labrador, <laughs> where I'll come in, you know, lick your face, uh, do a poo in the corner, hump your leg, get distracted and leave the room. I won't do any of those things. But then when I saw the film Up, there's that, it's a beautiful um, animation. And there's just a dog that keeps going, oh, squirrels, and then it's just constantly distracted. So... <laughs> So I, I too have a chaotic, frenetic uh, brain, which I relate to in your own description of your own mindscape. And so um, for me, it's things like table tennis tables that never fail to grab my attention. So anyway, what, what never fails to grab Paul Dodgson's attention? Okay, well, I'm gonna say Laura Marling um, as a gateway into music. And I say Laura Marling because she was the, last person that we sort of saw live sitting here because there was a, a actually it was a recording of a live stream that was broadcast a couple of weeks a few weeks ago and we sat on sunday night and watched it and wow. i find her songs extraordinary 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 actually just the tune the way the tuning she uses the mystery of the words uh the the lyricism and the melodies that you can't quite work out you just say her name again she's a new laura, discovery laura marling Laura Marling. So tell Laura. me a bit about her, because I'm ignorant she's, on my part. But she I don't is know. a, uh, I think she's 30 now, just about 30, and she is a singer, songwriter, primarily writing with an acoustic guitar, but experiments in all sorts of other areas. She kind of emerged around the time of people like Mumford and Sons, that sort uh, of, okay. it was a kind of gang of acoustic troubadours. But she's, a, she's. I, I mean, I would say she's the, you know, British Joni Mitchell. She's that. Oh, she's by that. the way, Joni Mitchell, your YouTube film of Poppy's song is in good company because just to the right of your film on the timeline is Case of You by Joni Mitchell. Really? Oh, nice. So you're in good company. So, and I, and, and that takes me into music and um, just the fact that I think music never fails to grab my attention because it's a way of explaining the world that doesn't just use words um but uses uh, you know there are i like songs which do have words but it's 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 a combination of music and words uh, and that is um the most for me it's a it, it, i listen and i understand things you know there's this amazing um there's this amazing description of i think one of shostakovich's symphonies being played during the siege of, of Leningrad um, and um, people sitting and listening to it and, um, and crying because they, they sort of understood the experience they were having through the music. The conduit, yes. And, I, that, and that's, that's what pop music does for me. You know, it, it, I, yeah. it, I sort of understand things that I can't express in words. And indeed the second part of your heading of your book is the transformational power of music so I know that's you know on on the road not taken a memoir about the transformational power of music mm. 
And what was in, I mean, what was interesting about the story, just to kind of add a bit of context, that in in the book, I start again, I start to sing again, and I go through a journey of perf- uh, uh, um, of starting to perform uh, and going off and performing in places all over the country and in Germany and 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 various other places. And what I discover as I do it is that the actually performing it isn't the same as watching it and experiencing yeah, yeah. it. And that actually when I'm performing it, I'm very much aware of everything that I can see and uh, um, what you can't see when you're focused on the stage, which is, you know, and people aren't as well behaved in, in gigs as they are in theatres. So, you know, it was when I, I did play in theatres and that was lovely because I had the lights on me and I couldn't actually see anything beyond the front row. But when I was playing in kind of pubs, you'd see people wandering around, having conversations, getting bored and wandering out, coming back in again at festivals, people coming in with a tray of food, kind of doing a bit of a dance and then going off again. And, um, <laughs> And all that sort of thing, and all of that's going on. And for me, I'm just hyper aware of everything. Um, what was the year of your rediscovery and reconnection to performing live? I'm thinking 2014, but maybe I've got that wrong. 2016. 2016. Uh-huh. Yeah, 2016. Yeah, but 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 sitting and listening to it and experiencing it is something that is is still as exciting. Uh, particularly finding new music, I think. Um, finding new music it's still as exciting to me as it was when I was um, 14 or 13 and 14 and first started discovering music and I I feel moved to ask you because of the the Hamlet line you know showing the mirror to nature which Mm. of those refractions do you prefer do you prefer performing live and then everything you're hypersensitive and aware of or do you prefer watching if you have to choose or maybe you'd like both I like both I like both I like the performance the performing is great for me it's like a it's like a drug. I'm, I, it's, I, you know, I talk about at one point I talk about playing a gig and realizing that I was on a high for the next two days, um, and um, it's 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 a sort of hyper hyper vigilance, hyper awareness of everything, and it's quite a struggle. I have to practice really hard. You know, some people just play, mm-hmm. and for me to be able to get to the standard where I can play for nearly two hours a night yeah yeah it's a lot of I have to practice I have to practice you know probably for two hours every day Paul it really does sound like a gift to yourself the fact you've found it again and you've rediscovered it and that's you know it's ex in talking to you I I totally understand the extra extra depth you know to the to the title of on the road not taken and then now you're back to taking you're back on the path having gone on lots of desire lines um, yeah, it is interesting. And to some extent, it, the desire is fulfilled, um, uh, you know, to, um, whether on, you know, whether or not I will go out again, I don't know yet. I'll see what happens when everything opens. On your website, there was a date being held, which is something like the 14th of March, but I didn't know whether that was a legacy date. Or was oh, that you were is that so? I must take that down. That was last year. So in fact, ah. the, so the, the story begins in Kent, in Hythe in Kent, and, um, and um, I talk about my school friend Fred a lot in the book, who I reconnected with as an adult, having not seen him for uh, 35 years. And we start playing again. And he came here and he stayed in this house and played on my record. Um, and uh, we've played live together. And it was a, it was a, a wonderful thing. And we were going to go back to Kent and play in Hythe. And it was going to be it was it was March the 14th last year. And it was an amazing night. A man, in fact, who happens to live in next door to the care home in where my mum lives, by strange coincidence, wrote to me um, 
when this story went out initially as a play on Radio 4 and he wrote to me because he heard the play and he liked it and then he bought the book and he kept in touch with me and it turned out he was living right next door to the care home where my mum um, is living and he said he said well I, I, I'll promote a gig um, and you and Fred can come back and play and we had this uh, we had this amazing night where my mum was going to come some of my mum's friends who are still alive some of my uh uh, school friends, you know, from when I was uh, a teenager had found out about it and they'd bought tickets and were coming along. And it was going to be this extraordinary night. And then on the Thursday, um, I was thinking, well, what are we going to do about this? You know, there was no kind of guidance. And on the Thursday before Boris made the speech, you know, some of you are going to lose loved ones. And I thought, you know, I, I, I then had to travel to Brighton to meet Fred to rehearse, uh, Fred, my school friend, not my son, uh, uh, to rehearse. I was going to ask, by the way, if your son's name was informed by your love way back when of Fred and your, your it relationship. It was, it was, yes, yes, it was. By the way, not directly connected, but my son's called Stan because of my love of Stan Laurel. So ah, now we have a similar, thing. similar resonances of why we've derived our children's names. But Yeah, and so we, and I made the decision to pull out because I thought, you know, there were a lot of older people coming and there were people coming from London and it was yes. the 14th of March. There were still things going on that weekend. Um, but um, yes, I was, was yeah, like coming that. up to an anniversary of that, isn't it? Obviously it is. And I think it was the right decision to, to not to do it, not to bring all those people together at that point. And by the way, I would so, so nudge and encourage you to make sure that you make it happen because. It yeah, no, happen. I will. We will. We will do it. We will go back and do it once we can. And there's a lovely sort of psychology of influence called social proof. You're more likely to do it if you say it out loud. So can you say officially that you're going to do the gig, Paul? <laughs> okay, Chris, we are going to go back and play in Hythe. And, uh, and what's Fred's full name? I know he's in the book. His name is Fred Gregory Davis. Um, and he, he was, he, he is an extra, he's a natural musician. He's extraordinarily talented. You know, he'll hear things and play along with them straight away. Um, he can sort of play in any key. Um, and, um, is able to, and what he he plays the mandolin actually on with with the music, and he adds a texture to it, because I tend to sort of I'm well, I do I pick, but if I'm if I'm strumming, then it I tend to be adding the kind of rhythmic energy to the songs. Yes, um, and then he adds a sort of texture, a delicate texture, um, which which fuses together and makes uh, makes it uh, much better. And that, of course, is what happens when you collaborate. That's I really do wonder what he'd say about you in the band, too, because you strike me as being someone who's just a natural great enabler of others. So whether you're a producer, you know, whether you're just enabling others to be fantastic when they stand up to do it. So I know that I, also in your, your album, which I'll show to the screen there, oh, which thank you. you're so kind to send me a copy of that too. Fire in the Darkness and uh, Fred's name's on the back as being the mandolin player. So it's, a, again, a very lovely instrument, a mandolin, too. Yeah, it is. It is a lovely thing. And it adds um, it adds a kind of counterpoint. Um, you know, he, that's what he's able to do to the to the to the melody. And, and I, uh, I always love the idea of a mandolin, even though it's not directly connected to the speech. But another favourite prologue to get people to be clear is the Romeo and Juliet prologue, I think. And I always think of a mandolin in the background of that. Yes. <laughs> um, yeah. So um, we've now got the two things that have shaped you. I think we've done that. Now grab your attention. And then. Yep. Now it's like one quirky or unusual fact about you we couldn't possibly know until you tell us. Okay. Um, I, <laughs> I had my first lesson in childcare from 
um, the man who introduced the phrase sex and drugs and rock and roll into the world, Ian, Ian Dury. Yeah. What? Wow, your first lesson in childcare, did you say? Yeah. yeah. Wow, because by the way, did you, did you see Ian Dury um, with Ian Glenn when they were in Bristol doing a production of Road? A really beautiful oh, no, I didn't. I think that was before my time, actually. I think. Um, anyway, sorry, that just yeah. triggered that memory because in Ian Jury, I loved Ian Jury and the Blockheads and yes, Sex and Drugs and Rock and Roll. Love that. So tell us the story of how did he give you a lesson in childcare? So what what happened was um, that Ian and I, I'd, I was when I when I was a producer for Radio Four. One of the things I wanted to do was to try to find, uh, try to bring more music onto the network, contemporary music because at the time it was there was a rather a dearth of it on radio 4 and at this point the um you know some performers like the pet shop boys and um ian jury you know he was in his 50s um as was neil Tennant from the pet shop boys people like that and uh, who who were intelligent thinking people and i thought they could you know they, there are things they could be doing on radio 4 they could be adding to the, the debate and so ian jury was one of the people that i approached and, and started to do things with fairly regularly you know different programs different things and so we got to know each other through making programs and the way it would happen is I would go up to his house in Hampstead and um uh, and sit there in the afternoon and we'd talk and things would happen and uh, we we would work it out and then we'd meet in the studio to record it and um uh and we had these rather lovely afternoons in the house and he had recently remarried um a much younger um uh, a woman and sh they had had a child called Bill and Bill was fairly new fairly sort of new in the world and um, at that point I just discovered that Kate was pregnant and uh, with Poppy and um, so I told him and he said well you need he goes do you know how to hold a baby and I said no idea and he goes well you can learn now and he <sighs> asked me Bill and he said no put your hand underneath that's it and you do this and you hold it like that and so yeah so I learned how to hold a baby uh, from Ian Dury. Villa Ricky Dicky to yeah. hold a baby. Also, the fact you lived in Hampstead, I would assume Villa Ricky, but of course not. No, no, that's right. <laughs> but so, how cool to say that you're a friend of Ian Dury. Dury. Fantastic. Well, I don't know about a friend. We 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 work together, and I could phone him up. I could phone him up, but uh, and we could talk about things. And sadly, he died. He was fifty-seven when he died. Um, of he died of lung cancer too. Oh. Um, uh, and so no more but um, are you connected to Bill still no I'm not at all I mean he's he's I, I don't know what happened to Bill his other son Baxter Baxter Dury who's a son from a, uh, a, his previous marriage is a fully fledged performer um, with and I've seen him live who is pretty amazing and he's sort of taken on uh, Ian Dury's style but he it's a very contemporary way of being um, and it's really worth listening to Baxter Dury as a, when you say he's a performer, you mean yeah, a he's a performer. He's a musician. Musician. Yeah. Sorry, I was wondering which element of performance he'd gone yeah, into. He's a, he's a musician um, and a songwriter, and with a with a unique style. I mean, you know, it's you know, you you if you listen to it, you would probably say there's Ian Jury in there somewhere, oh, but you might not? not know it's yes, his, absolutely. It's dad, but he has he has the voice, he has the presence. It's uh, yeah, he's fantastic. So, uh, Paul Dodson, we have successfully shaken your tree to see which apples fall out. That was beautiful. Now we stay in the clearing and we move away from the tree and we're going to talk about alchemy and gold now. So when you are at purpose and in flow, 
in your journey to now and what you're here to do. I've sometimes yep. uh, heard of it, by the way, in resonance with Brislington Diamonds. It's called <laughs> The Diamonds Beneath Our Feet. Yes. What is the okay. alchemy and the gold that Paul Dodgson likes to bring to the world? You know, what's your purpose? Well, I think, I mean, I think, again, I will use the, um, I will use the umbrella term story engineer. I, 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 but I would say it's not any one thing because there are moments, you know, when, for example, when we recorded Poppy Song, I remember the moment when we, we recorded it live in one take, um, not, not just one take, we did it repeatedly, but um, we, we did it live together. And um, we sat down in the studio, which is, happens to be just across the road from here. And uh, we played it and I remember the sound fusing um, and it all feeling like one thing. So I didn't know where he, where I, my playing stopped and his playing began, you know, it was, it felt like one sound and that felt like purpose. You know, that felt like an amazing thing at that moment. And then there are times when I'm writing and um, stuff surfaces and you think, where has that come from? You know, it might be words or it might be, um, it might be lyrics, but it, it surfaces and there's something wonderful about that. There's something alchemical about that moment yes. when you uh, get yourself to a place where stuff comes unbidden. Um, and then finally, I'd say sitting in a, when I've been running a life writing workshop with people and we've started in the morning and we've been working through exercises and then I've commissioned a piece of writing from everybody and we sit around in the afternoon and before everybody goes home, we listen to what people have written and sitting there and listening to 10 extraordinary stories from people's lives is the most remarkable thing and it feels like um i've walked down a dark corridor and opened a door and there's this amazing landscape beyond that suddenly everybody can see and uh, uh, and uh, and that's an amazing thing and so that i would say that's the uh, those are the moments that uh, of alchemy alchemy right there what a beautiful interpretation of that question thank you and now we arrive at the moment where i'm going to award you with a cake Paul Dodgson for blessing us with your presence here in the Good Listening To podcast clearing. And the cake is again, a beautiful idea that's open to interpretation uh, in, it's gonna be beautiful in what you reply with is what I mean. Um, it can be, your cherry on the cake can be the best piece of advice you've ever been given. Yep. It could be what notes you give to your younger self, or it could be a favorite inspirational quote that's always pulled you towards your future mm -hmm. or and we can go here as well. Um, what would you like your legacy to be? So inspired by all the world's a stage and all the men and women merely players, you know, when all is said and done, how would you most like to be remembered? Again, it's, it's deliberately open to interpretation and rich therefore, but where would you like to take the awarding of Paul Dodgson with a cake? Okay, I'm, well, I'm gonna go back to Poppy Song and I'm going to use a lyric, a, a line from the lyric there, which is don't spend your life waiting for something to arrive. If I could tell you just one thing, it's to know that you're alive. Um, and that's what I wrote for Poppy in that song. But I suppose I was also writing it to my younger self. Um, and, um, and that's what I would want to pass out to anyone else. Your beautiful book, On the Road Not Taken. Um, where else, where can we find out specifically about this book and anywhere, anywhere else you'd like to point us to for Paul Dodgson on the internet? Okay, well, it's the book is available in all 
through all good bookshops and internet. Obviously, there aren't any bookshops at the moment; they're open. But you can you can buy it through all, all of the bookshops, uh, uh, you know, uh, traditional bookshops as well as the online retailers. Um, and um, the if you want to listen to my music, uh, go to Spotify. Um, uh, you can have a CD if you write to me, but um, the it's all online in all the streaming services. Uh, which is where things seem to be these days and on YouTube. Um, and there is a website called ontheroadnottaken.co.uk that has um, a bit more stuff. But I'm not a great internet presence at the moment, I have to say. I'm not a great, I'm not, I'm, I don't, I'm not putting much stuff out there. But you are a great presence, if I may say. <laughs> is there anything else, by the way? I don't always think to ask this question, but is there anything else you'd like to say um, to bring our conversation to a close? No, I, th I feel like I've, I feel like I've come to the end. I suppose the, um, yeah, I, th I think I, I think we've, I think I've enjoyed talking to you very much. And, um, and I feel like we're, we're there. Me too. And I was just really inquisitive to make sure I'd, I'd said enough about how brilliant I think the book is. But anyway, um, Paul Dodgson, thank you so much for, um, it's been a privilege actually, gracing us with your presence here on the Good Listening To podcast. Thank you very much indeed. Good night. You've been listening to the Good Listening To podcast with me, Chris Grimes. If you've enjoyed the programme, then please do subscribe on all the usual channels. There's also a dedicated Facebook group for the programme too, and I'm hosted on Buzzsprout. If you'd like to connect with me on LinkedIn, then please do, and then on Twitter and Instagram, at that Chris Grimes. Also, if you'd be interested in having some coaching from me to help you level up your confidence, your personal impact, or your brand, then contact me via email, chris at secondcurve.uk. So until next time, thank you for listening, and goodbye. <laughs>